We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You do a podcast in the first week of the Interlaw and no one's around to hear it. Does it matter what you say? This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can find me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. These are the pods where you just throw your hands up. Not a lot of news. People aren't really desperate for news. Things are pretty tranquil in the Arsenal camp. Transfer rumors aren't really sticking yet. And there's not a whole lot to be said. A lot of puff pieces out. So I guess the first thing I can do is tell you that you should listen to Tim's interview with Gabriel Clark, the co-director of the Invincible documentary. Once I think it is, it is out today. And when it is fully out and people have had a chance to digest it, we're going to do a movie night. And what we'll do with the movie night is like sort of a roundtable discussion of the movie as a movie, things we liked about it, things that didn't work about it, and then also maybe reminisce about some of the points that came up in the movie um, in our Watford Rewatch for patrons, which I encourage you to watch because I went full Tom Cruise and Top Gun. If you don't know what I mean, you will certainly discover it. Um, you know, Clive and I went back and forth a bit on one moment in particular, which is that week in the Invincible season where we got knocked out of the FA Cup by United in the semifinal and the Champions League by Chelsea and sort of the dominoes that fell as a result of that. And, you know, Clive made the point and I sort of agreed, or I made the point and Clive maybe agreed. The point is a lot of agreement was made. Uh, over the fact that that may have been that Wayne Bridge goal may have been one of the most painful memories as an Arsenal fan uh, in 20 or 30 years. So interesting stuff. We'll we'll definitely do an episode about that. Maybe we can just like lightly touch on it today, but we're going to talk a little bit about the Josh Kroenke interview that we didn't get to previously because we were talking about actual football. And then uh, after the break, David Hartrick will be back on the pod. He was on about a year ago to talk about Emil Smith-Rowe and what we could expect from this bright young prospect who had been um, on loan at Huddersfield and what he thought of his time at Huddersfield. And now a year later, um, when it looks like he might be a half decent player, uh, who could have a bright future, maybe, um, David is going to celebrate how right he was. And we will, we will have a fun chat about that. So that's all ahead. And here to talk to me, not to talk to me. Well, yeah, probably I was going to say talk with me, but more to talk at me is Clive. You can find him on Twitter at Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello. hello. And Scott, you can find him on Twitter at Scott. 
nope, you can't do that. I mean, you, you can find lots of people at that, but you can find this one at O underscore that underscore crab host Scott. Yeah. You know, I've, I've had some experience now with some people with underscores in their names and I feel your pain. Yeah. And have you ever tried to do it at the speed I talk? I talk fast too. Yeah, that's true. You do. Hey, you did a brilliant interview with Mike Goodman, the head of uh, football at CBS Sports, um, on the Patreon side for an analytics pod. I thought that was a great chat. I know you enjoyed it in particular. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's always fun to talk with Mike and do those kinds of things. So yeah, it was a really good chat. Um, I didn't think we were too gloomy. I thought it was actually a pretty well-balanced discussion on things. We touched on uh, a few other things besides Arsenal as well. So it was nice to be able to talk with him. It is sort of the interesting dichotomy, right? That like sometimes when you go under the hood in the analytics side of things, it tells you things that your sort of qualitative brain doesn't want to hear and isn't ready to hear. Everything's going great at Arsenal. We're winning. We're going to win the league. We're moving up the table. And looking under the hood can sometimes depress those feelings. But I think that your episode with him actually suggested that maybe this isn't an illusion. And I liked that. And uh, we'll leave it at that. But yeah, definitely want to check out if you want to. So Clive, um, super quick, you know, uh, Emil Smith-Rowe got his call up to England. And so Saka is there and Smith-Rowe is there. And I think in short order, we will be seeing players like Benjamin White back in the team and Ramsdale in the team. Um, I, I sort of wonder... This is always a hard conversation, right? Because it is not about, um, you know, patriotism or nationalism or any of that stuff. It is purely about the way you build a team. And I, I think about this in the wake of watching Arsene Wenger's Invincible movie because he talks a lot about the the three stages of the team he had. And that, you know, he had a very English, very British team initially. And then he had a very sort of continental team that had a very English culture. And then there's the third phase. And we all know how things sort of went with that. But... You know, there is a, th- a through line in his conversation about the importance of that English footballing culture and and even the English players that he had when he first arrived. I'm curious what you think, if you think there was a strong intention on the part of the club in building this way with, you know, Saka and Smith are obviously coming through the academy and then bringing in um, Benjamin White and Aaron Ramsdale. And what benefits beyond just it makes, you know, English people happy to see English players. Are there benefits for a team like Arsenal to having a young, specifically English core? Yeah, it's a tough one. I I think, I I think it's important. I I, I take it up a level, right? I think it's important that we think the players are likable and I like this group and they're not all English ones I like, right? But you do need to feel we are an English based club. There is, you know, there's a there's a level of globality to the club, but there's also a, a level of locality to the club, and you need to connect to both aspects of your support and both aspects of the people within the club. And I think we have young players in the academy coming through, and they all need to look up to something, you know. And um, the club has layers, right? If you can't look up and see what you could be, then it's difficult, isn't it? It's a challenge for you. I think. It's important to have those standard bearers in the club that maybe have come through that are that are English that you can say, "I if he can do it, I can do it." Right. So, I've not to sort of um, given with the Brexit rules, for example, it's going to be more difficult to bring over people like says Fabregas we did years ago. So that is important. I do feel there is a fan base that wants to connect to um, English British players. But for me, it's less important, so I almost like feel uneasy talking about it. But I do like the group we have now, and I do like what they they represent. And um, you know, I'm English, 
And so I, 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 it's easier to connect with people that, you know, that you have a similar background to in some ways or form. So I think it's important, but I, I don't want to over-index the importance of it any because I think what's most important is the content of your character, shall we say, mm-hmm. <clears throat> who you are, how you operate, what your motivations are for being in the club. Are you setting the right examples? Are you a role model? Are you doing things properly? I think that's far more important than where your passport comes from. But if you can get everything right in that respect, then fine. But if a person, if a player, like, for example, six months ago, I didn't know who Nuno Tavares was. But the way he's come in and the way he's played, he looks like an Arsenal footballer to me. I think the identity of what an Arsenal player should look like is what I see returning. And, I, and wherever they come from, I'm not really overly concerned. But from an academy point of view, I do think there is an importance they can see people that have a similar pathway to what they have. And that that's, that creates something massive from a promotion through the club perspective. So that's where my thoughts are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, so it's funny, right? When I first became an Arsenal fan, and Scott, I don't know if you can connect with this. I had that sort of inferiority complex that I think as a foreign fan you develop because you're very aware of the local aspects and the community aspects of the club and the connection. And at that time on Twitter in particular, I think you heard more of this sort of derisory comments about the global fan and things like that. And there have been attempts, I think, over time to to smooth those relationships. And over time, you just you come to realize that as a fan, you matter. And it doesn't matter if other people think you do or not. And and you you come to terms with that. And you set aside having to feel like you are as important or less important or more important than any other fan. You, you know, you fan the way you fan. But as a result, I think early on, I sort of dismissed the value of nationality as being relevant to the players that you have in the team. I think I've come around on this a little bit in the sense that I, I do think having players that grew up within your club and so they are really connected culturally to the rivalries, the importance, the meaning of the trophies, the meaning of you know which leagues and which things you win can be important. But also, Scott, I think if you want to hold on to your players, I think it is easier to do that with players that have a little bit more of a geographic and national connection because if you have English players in an English football club, they may not feel that their actual home is Barcelona or Real Madrid or Atletico Madrid or Juventus or PSG or whatever the case may be. Yeah, Bayern um, Munich. Or- yeah, Bayern Munich, exactly. Um, you know, would would Serge Gnabry have been as, as quick to run off to Germany under the circumstances if he had been, you know, a kid from London? And, you know, again, this is not a character evaluation. This is just the reality. That I think what we forget sometimes is when you are 18 years old, 17 years old, 21 years old, did you live with your parents? Did you live within five miles of your parents? Did you live in your country? Did you live in a foreign country by yourself? I mean, we, we forget sometimes the character and the, the, the challenge it takes for someone like a Gabriel Martinelli, who is a teenager who moved from Brazil across an ocean to England, right? These, these kids that not only have to try to make it in elite football, but do it thousands of miles and a different language and a different culture away from anything they've ever known at a very young age. It is the human part of the game that is easy to forget. And so I do think 
the camaraderie of being with other English players, the, the locality of being near what you consider your home and being in a league that feels like your home. And, you know, the great thing then is what are the clubs they might go to? United, City, Chelsea, Liverpool, maybe. Maybe that's the list. Maybe not even a Liverpool so much. So do you think there is a benefit in that respect, Scott, that the the acclimation is easier, acclimatization, whatever you want to say, but also you have a lot more, a lot less worry that they're going to run off at the first big club, especially foreign big club that bats their eyelashes at them in the way an Alex Song did, an Alex Leb did, you know, the way to some, I mean, Fabregas went home, you know, you don't have those issues. I think that is a, a certain thing because I mean I think that's some of the reason that Arsenal are able to get some of these players I think that's why you look why we were able to get white why we were able to get Ramsdale is because we're Arsenal and we are a bigger club than some of these other teams so I think that is definitely part of a draw where there is the the hierarchy of teams I think one of the things that you you look at Arsenal and I think there's a, a pretty good balance I think it kind of um, matches the the cosmopolitanness of London um, it's got a, an English feel but there's definitely a whole host of other cultures that are represented within London. And I feel that you have that within the team. So it, it all comes together and kind of gets a little bit of the best of everything. So yeah, there's the, the British kind ofness that goes with it, but you also have the best of other things that really kind of really make, I think what a, a, a big city great. You'd be able to have a little bit of everything and all of that. So I think that, I think you see that within Arsenal. And I think the other thing that's, that's interesting is that we're not having English people just for English, just to have English people. It's, you know, it's not just to kind of as a affirmative action thing. No, these are the best of the English people that we're having. And I think you can see that now as our players are now starting to be inside the English national team. And I think that's something that is important as well. It's not just that we're, we're having, you know, British people to have British people to make people feel better. It's no, we're, we're actually creating better players through the competition that we have in the team. Yeah, I mean, there is a difference between, like, I want Englishness in the team, which, by the way, if you're an English person and that's what you want, like, I, I totally get it. Like, if an American player went to Arsenal, yeah, that'd be exciting, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to pretend it wouldn't be cool. It, it would be cool. And I remember, like, there was a time when I was like, Gideon Zalalem's going to be the, the hero of Arsenal and, and the United States men's national team, and that'll be amazing. And I don't know if you know this, spoiler alert, it, it did not happen, as it turns out. Um, or the or, or Flo Balogun, you know, he's born in New York City. So, I mean, yeah, he, technically, he technically has got the, the dual citizenship. He could, yeah, he could switch and, allegiances. And that one, there's still time. So, Clive, I don't want to go too far on this, but I think it is going to be fun to watch these English kids, and that's what they are, they're kids, basically, grow up at Arsenal together, grow up into the English national team together. And I have to admit, right, like, as a foreign fan, when you become an Arsenal fan, you adopt or at least for me, I adopt a little bit of this Englishness and, you know, find myself wanting to root for the English national team. But when it's filled with Spurs players and Chelsea players, you know, John Terry and Wayne Rooney and Harry Kane and, you know, players that I just can't stand, it, it's a bitter pill to swallow. But, you know, when it was Jack Wilshere was going to be the savior of England or Theo Walcott was scoring a hat trick against Croatia, that's fun. So, you know, I think it is, it is going to be fun to watch this. It is going to be fun to see if Arsenal can become the beating heart of the next generation of the England team. And I, I think that that strengthens us as a club also for attracting other bright young English players. I think that there's a desire to, to join up in that way. And in a, at a time when maybe you don't have as much economic leverage as you might like, you've said this, Clive, become the employer of choice, right? Become the, the destination of choice. Maybe you can't be that for every 
young up and coming French player or German player. But if you get lucky and it's a generation, a golden generation of young English players, maybe that's where you hang your hat. Yeah, I think I've, I've often felt in the past, I've said it to you before, that I think we've been looked at almost like a foreign club within the English league. And so a bit of me has always felt that other clubs like Chelsea, May United and Spurs who provided England players to the national team. I get, you know, whether I'm right or wrong, get favourable decisions and get looked at differently. And it's probably all in my head, but that's what I feel. And um, I've felt it for many years. And so, um, so yeah, we've got three in the England squad right now and, and Ben White will be there in not too long. And I think next international break is March. If he keeps doing what he's doing, there's no reason why he won't be there. And, you know, so there is a, <coughs> excuse me, there is a, there is a, a stream of young players coming through who are already in the England track, you know, like Patino, Aziz, and Amari Hutchison won't be far away, and Balogun's playing for under-21s. So there is there is more to come. And I do think, I, I care about Arsenal being that place where people want to be. If it's a closed shop and, and it's only got people that come from different parts of the world and, 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 and other players who are local can't get the same opportunities, I just want it to be a place where everyone gets equal opportunity to show their talent, but there is a, a way of being an Arsenal player. But also, I do you know I can't do I can't hide from the fact that it would be it is nice to see the club represented at that level. You know, I was watching the videos this week of Smith Rowe and Ramsdale at the England training camp, but it, and it, and it's it's a good feeling. Right? I can't deny it. It's a good feeling. You know, I've grown up with watching the national team, and, I'll, and you want Arsenal to be represented there. So we're going to have four there. And, and if you go into the market and you've got young young players that are moving clubs, and they're talking to our Arsenal players, and what's it like? What's it like? I and mean, that's how things develop, right? That's how you get the next player. So. It's not going to happen, but, you know, there's a Jude Bellingham out there, a Calvert-Lewin out there, you know, that people like. You know what I'm saying? It would be great to see them at Arsenal, you know, those type of players and young up-and-coming players that are really rounded individuals that can really play football well. You know, what, what's not to like, right? So, at the moment, we've had two young stars in particular, in Smith and Saka. I just think, I think they represent the club fantastically well fantastically well they're just absolutely superb road models that no one can dislike you know and i and i just i'm just so pleased for them right and there's a i look at some of the videos and you look at the comments and it's full of arsenal fans and everyone's using words like pride you know i feel like a proud dad with these two out there doing it and i 100 concur right so just i just want to keep it positive at the moment i just feel very very pleased that we are seen as a club that's improving and again on those videos they said when Smith Rowe turned up I think he was the lady that greeted him said it's like an arsehole takeover here and that's what you want <laughs> yeah, you don't want an international break and all your players are training <laughs> you don't want that that tells you you haven't got the right quality of squad so these are first world problems I'm really pleased that they're doing their bits for the country yeah um, I will I will throw two Two issues out there, a positive and a negative. The positive of having players that become important parts of the England team is that you get referee decisions. Let's not beat around the bush. England internationals get decisions. They do. If a foreign player goes in on an English national team player, they get decisions. I present for you Kane, comma, Harry. Like, it just happens. Rooney, comma, Wayne. It happens. Um, the, the downside is... 
we have lived through a bit of the white hot scrutiny with our players that comes when they are key parts of the national team. And I, I think it takes a tremendous amount of character to wear that expectation and that that challenge. Now, you could say that's true for any player in any national team. I don't know if the tabloid culture in other places is quite like it is with the England team. Look at what Rashford goes through. Look at what Bukayo Saka had to go through after this summer. Look what Sterling at what, has gone through. What Sterling, of course, has gone through. What uh, Jack Wilshire had to deal with, with just trying to learn his football and also be the golden child of, you know, I mean, there, there was the night out with the hookah pipe or whatever. And like, you're just, you're going to be followed around. You're going to be scrutinized. People are going to have opinions and some sort of muckraking tabloid journalism is going to go on <clears throat> around your private life. So it, you don't just get to quietly develop your game if you are an England national team player with a bright future. And that, that, it's just part of it, though. That's part yeah. of it in elite football, right, Clive? Yeah, can I just add to that? I yeah. think mm-hmm. this is where I think Southgate has done a fantastic job, right? He's created a much closer relationship with the football press, shall we say. Um, he's created a very good club culture. He's taken away some of the rivalries, in, in-club rivalries. And the, that England team, they're, they're tight, mate. They really are tight. You don't see many people not wanting to go to the squads anymore. There's not any dropouts that it used to be. It's uh, It looks to me like a good place to be. And I think they've worked it out that England finally, if the press are there just to kill them every single time, and we're not going anywhere. We're not doing anything. And the record's improved as the relationships have improved and the, the culture within the England team has improved. And I think he's done a great job, Southgate, on that side of things. We can all debate his selections and formations and systems and two DMs, etc. But from a people side of things, a culture side of things, getting close to the media, I don't think he can do much better. He's a great ambassador. I think that's improved. But your points historically, Elliot, or some of those particularly on the racism side, that that's out there, right? But that's out that's a social media thing. You know, it's a social with, thing, full stop. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a society thing, basically. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yep. And um, and that's not that's not changing anytime soon. But at least we're talking about it, and our yeah. conversations are absolutely current. Yeah. So um, yeah. You know what? To be fair to these younger players too, though they're growing up in an age of TikTok and YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and they they might wind up having the thicker skins because they they get the abuse in the comments and they get the you know the trolls in their mentions and i'm not saying it's nice but i'm saying it's hard for a Wayne Rooney or a Jack Wilshire you know to prepare for the tabloid spotlight when it hits you for the first time but these young kids you know from the time they've been in academies they've had people writing stuff about them on Instagram and YouTube and TikTok and Twitch and Twitter and you know they may they just be maybe more equipped to tune it out because they've grown up in an age of intense noise around them. So we'll see. Um, I want to shift gears a little though and talk the Josh Kroenke interview. I want to be careful because by and large, anytime you know the owner of a club gets to sit down with a journalist and talk to the public, you are getting PR. That is what you are getting, even if the journalist wants to try to tease out complex answers. You're going to get what they want to give you. But I am curious, Scott, if the interview and and Josh Kroenke's increased involvement, I mean, let's face it, right? We don't hear from Stan. We don't see Stan. 
Arsenal Football Club is Josh Kroenke's football club now. I think it is fair. So let's start with that. Do you think it is fair to say, given the extent to which now we hear from Josh Kroenke and Arsenal, we see Josh Kroenke at Arsenal, um, that the transition from it feeling like Stan is, I mean, Stan owns it, but in terms of who's at the top of the levers of power, do you think it is Josh or do you think that he just likes doing that more and Stan is still pulling the levers? I mean, yeah, I think that is fair to say because I think you know they they own a number of teams, and I think that I think Stan's heart is in Saint, or you know is with the the Rams. So I think you that's kind St. Of, Louis. You said. I know we were talking about it a little bit before, so that's why I kind of had it in my head. Um, but I think well, I mean, he's also associated with the there, and but yeah, I think this is Josh's team, um, and I think this is a, an interesting thing because I think he definitely has the the media polish that maybe Stan doesn't have. You know, Stan is silent Sam for you know the long you know that is the reason because he he doesn't do these kinds of things. Um, but I think Josh is good at these things. Um, I don't think there's a lot that came out of this that's, you know, you know, super unknown or, you know, wasn't like groundbreaking stuff, but it's, I think it is good sometimes just to, to hear a lot of the things that you want to hear. I mean, he's saying the right things. He's not making any mistake, uh, missteps. So it's definitely good to see these things and actually have a face to go along with the, you know, the ownership instead of it just kind of being a, a guy that you don't really, you can kind of project on. It kind of, I guess, humanizes things a little bit more. So it, it kind of makes it a little bit better. I don't know if, I mean, I don't think that this is going to magically make the um, KSC popular with, you know, the fans, but at least it's something that, you're getting something from them instead of it just being kind of a, a black box that owns this team. And, you know, you can kind of see it taking money out. So I think this is at least a positive. It's kind of the minimum requirements. I don't think that this is great, but it's, you know, it's better than nothing. Mm. Clive, I, I want to ask you the hard hitting question. Go on then. Why hasn't Josh Kroenke used his power as Zod to banish our rivals to the phantom zone? <laughs> I don't know if you follow that question. Have you no. seen, a picture of Josh Kroenke lately? I've seen the beard. He is con- making a full conversion to Zod from the Superman franchise. And I just want to know why he doesn't use that power imbued upon him by our yellow sun to banish our rivals to the Phantom Zone. Uh, all kidding aside, although I do want that question answered. Um, do you, all right, so set aside whether you think he's the one really running the club. I, I think it, it, it certainly seems for all intents and purposes that he all right. So so let's just agree to that for now. I mean, do I think Stan would get involved if big sums of money and big decisions were on the table? I think he'd at least want to be apprised of them. But I think Josh has a lot of leeway there. Do you find any solace in that? Do you find that his ability to communicate or willingness to com- communicate more is meaningful, or is it window dressing? You see, it depends. I think this is how I. I'm, I'm never too much worried about this side of of uh, communication. I actually enjoy it. I think any word we get from the club, I can I can digest it and I can take something from it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think what we tend to do, or what I've seen people do, is oh, we need to talk more. We need to talk more. And as soon as they talk, we say, "Well, what did I say that for?" Well, that's crap. That's what, and I just think, "Oh, how can you? You can't win. You can't win." Personally. If the club is opening the window to what goes on and how they operate, I'm all for it. I want to learn. I want to get closer. I want to try to understand the strategy. I want to, I'm adult enough to, they can communicate to me and I can take from it what I want. It hasn't got to be perfect. Right? I don't, it's not going to keep me awake. It's not going to make me think the club is something different. It's just communication. Take it, listen to it, and try to see if it's consistent. Right? So, so the fact he talks 
and I don't see many other owners doing this, by the way. But the fact he talks is um, he's good. I saw Jamie Carragher say the other week, and I was disappointed. He sort of said, they did the interview and said, oh, it's great that the owners of Arsenal are talking. And then he labelled him David Brent. I thought, well, why would another owner come on and talk if you're doing that, if you just put a little headline around it? You know, mm-hmm. so I, I was just so disappointed in that because we want to hear more from these people. We want to hear more from data analysts, for example, what they're trying to do. We want to hear more from the academy coaches. We want to hear more from academy players. We want to hear, we want more access to the club. We want more access. So when they do something like this, then to sit back and keep your mouth shut and try to understand it rather than label it something cheap for a headline. You know, so that's that's my view there. So we, we it's to me, Josh, it's a, it's a difficult one, right? Because when things are not going well, Josh is young, Edu is young, Vina is young, Arteta is young, our players are youngest in the in the league. What the hell's going on here? Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. But when it's going well, it's going well right now, he can sit there and he doesn't get tomatoed, right? So a few months ago with the Super League, etc., this interview would be much more challenging to do. When we were zero points from three games, this interview would be much more challenging to do. After a six-signing summer where all of them seemed really, really good, and getting rid of some idiots and paying them off and bank loans being guaranteed, it's a it's a better place to be. You know, we're top top of the form table, managers manager in a month. We can have a sit down, have a chat. You know, and it's and it's and it's quite good. I, I'm all for any form of communication that allows us transparency into the club and how it's operating and the strategy that it's undertaking. It's been a while we have a level of calm and stability that's the most important thing at the moment so we can build layers on top of this so i i do I, i'm one of those people that doesn't think i don't hate the owners i don't love the owners i don't know the owners but <laughs> but talk to me be let's see what you're trying to achieve let's see what your motivations are i think what that interview did to me earlier you got me thinking now mate sorry what that interview did to me was made me think about the drift since our old board let the club go into dual ownership. And that dual ownership (laughs) period is the period that I look back and think, what the hell are we doing? You know, Mm. what the hell are we doing? Now, we've made mistakes in single ownership, but we're doing something now. The drift has stopped. We are trying again. And I yeah. think that's the bit that I'm encouraged by. No one can say we're not doing something. We're trying to do something. You may not agree with it, but we're not sitting on our hands, buying certain signings as trinkets, being fooled by FA Cup wins and overpaying our mates. We're not doing that anymore. We're, we're trying to do something proper, and, I, and I'm encouraged by that alone. I've always sort of felt that the ability for Arsenal to succeed under KSE ownership was not limited by spending, but by appointments. That KSE has a a, a tradition of being sort of non-interventionist, hiring people, and letting those people really run their their properties, their entities. And when those people are Raul Sanyehi and Unai Emery, you get what you get. And you don't throw a fit, as you say to a kid. Um, But you do throw a fit. We did throw a fit, and rightly so. I think that Josh Kroenke's involvement changes that slightly because it does look like he's going to be a little more involved. 
maybe that's an overstatement. It certainly seems like he has more of his eye cast on Arsenal and what's going on there. But I think at a minimum we can say, look, KSE is never going to spend the way City does, the way Chelsea does, the way United can because of their revenue. But I don't feel that we are going to be held back and hamstrung in our spending such that we can't do it right and, you know, do, I hate, I know everyone hates when I invoke it, but do a Liverpool, right? The model feels similar. Now, you got to thread a really difficult needle to succeed that way because you're going to get outspent by a few big giant clubs and your spending, even though it's substantial, has to be right. But I think as long as we appoint smart people, that the owners, the biggest criticism I've had about the owners in the past was they don't, they don't know what's happening. They, you know, the buck has to stop somewhere. And if the club is rotting from the inside out and the owners aren't doing anything about it, then that is the owner's responsibility at some level. But it does look like there's an eye on it. And it does look like there's a willingness to try to hire the right people and get them in place. And we'll just have to keep an eye on that. Look, the one big bubbling wound with all of this is the Super League situation. They can't hand wave it away. It is what it is. I think Josh Kroenke said what is the company line, which is we had to look at it as which is better, a Super League without Arsenal or a Super League with Arsenal because it was going forward and we chose a Super League with Arsenal. Everyone's mileage will vary on whether they believe that statement and whether they are sympathetic to that statement. But if you set aside the Super League issue and just look at whether Arsenal can thrive under KSE, I have always felt in total that it is not a net negative having KSE at the helm and the extent to which it's a net positive, it will never be a net positive in the way that like a, you know, city's ownership model is or Chelsea's ownership model. And what I mean by not a net negative is I don't think we cannot succeed because of their ownership. I don't think there's anything KSE is doing, Scott, where you would say as a result of their ownership, we are unable to succeed. I think the key to success under KSE's ownership will be Kroenke keeping an eye on what's happening being decisive when it's not working, and appointing, ultimately, most importantly, appointing good people. Because if there are good people that are appointed, I don't think we lack the ability to succeed. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I was thinking about this while, while Clive was talking about the, the dual ownership thing, and I think that's something that, that Josh kind of brought up. They really stressed that they haven't had ownership since 2018, which it can be a little disingenuous because they've had majority stake for longer than that. But I think maybe in their mind, they didn't want to overly invest until they were the ones that were going to reap all of the benefits. So I think that maybe there is something to that. Um, I think that you can kind of see a little bit more of um, them kind of putting their money where their mouth is. Cause I think that's really more, you can see the actions speaking. I mean, you can say all the pretty words that you want, but I think you can actually see that, you know, they have put investment and in, they have um, been willing to underwrite losses and do these kinds of things. Cause it's, it's it could have been very easy for them to say um, this, this is a team that's hemorrhaging money right now because we went a season and a half without any fans. And, you know, I think Arsenal more than any of the other big teams are really dependent on that revenue. And, you know, you could say, all right, well, we were losing a hundred million pounds here that we would have normally had. And it could have been easy to say, Oh, we're not going to be able to do that, but they, they didn't. So, I mean, I guess that's some credit to them. So it's like, yeah, I think your, your point is they are not going to hold us back. So maybe they're not going to um, inject incredible amounts of money, but they're going to backstop some losses, be able to do some of these um, kind of investments. And I think that's something that's a lot more important where we can see the actions of the ownership, 
not holding back the team rather than the words. I, I think the words are more that you can hurt yourself, not really help yourself. Because I, I think back to what Stan Kroenke said, I don't remember exactly what it was, it was 2008, you know, 16 or something like that, where you don't buy clubs to win trophies. You know, you, you're essentially, you don't buy a club like Arsenal to win trophies. That, that was the thing that, you know, really kind of stuck with people for so long. And it's like just really kind of under you know, said that this time doesn't have the ambition. So I think Josh Kroenke is saying the right things, but yeah, it's, I think it's the, the actions, the people that we're appointing, trying to see that there's actually a plan here. Now, those are the things that are going to turn people around, not necessarily words said in an interview. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, and, and I want to be clear about saying, right. Like I don't, I'm not going to, argue with anybody who wants to say like, I don't like them owning my club. I want them out of my club. I don't like what they represent, or I think there should be fan ownership. But like, I I realize all of that is bound up. All I'm trying to evaluate this from is the standpoint of can Arsenal football club succeed with them as the owners? Because I think if we start to overly moralize about ownership and overly concern ourselves with who should rightfully own a football club, you need to change all ownership in football, not just Arsenal. Because we are reaching a point where if you don't have a properly capitalized billionaire owning your club, your club will fail, period. That's it. There's no there's no succeeding in football without a properly capitalized billionaire at the helm. Um, not in the Premier League. And you say, well, you know, the, the, the German model, the, the German model. Well, what the German model is, is a workaround where Bayern can dominate every single season, right? Um, and the German model, I want to be clear, is not technically an ownership model. It is a voting on key issues model. And that, that may be a good, like, my point wasn't that those are bad models. It's that if you don't like who owns our football club, I think then you need to say we need to change who owns all Premier League football clubs, um, if you follow what I'm saying. Because we have an owner that can at least keep us in the conversation. And I, I guess... This is really hard because there's so much bound up in it, but I guess where I would land on it is I can live with this. I think that we can succeed with this, and I don't think it specifically excludes us from being able to succeed. Um, Setting aside the point that, like, yeah, someone who's just using the club as a plaything and will pump billions into it, that's that's the surefire way to succeed. But this way is viable. And the moralizing about good owners and bad owners is a different kind of conversation. I'm looking at this from a competition standpoint, Clive, and from a competition standpoint, there's nothing here that I think specifically prevents us from being able to compete. And I certainly think that we may be moving more in the right direction now with them having full ownership and with Josh seeming to be a little more plugged in on a daily basis. Yeah. And Tim Lewis arrived on the board as well. We, we've seen this develop in in a strange way. I think they had majority ownership since 2009, I think, from memory, and single ownership from 2018. And here we are in 2021, and I feel as though we're still getting to know them. It sounds crazy, and I think they're showing a different face. Um, you could, Some people may be screaming at their electronic devices now saying, well, they had to oppose the Super League. Well, the reasons or motivations that you know we're not quite sure of yet, but I can only say what they've done i don't know where i'm not a financial expert so i don't know where those loans are going are they on the club will we turn up in a year or so so time after another 140 million loss which we're going to have to take post 
COVID and look at our debt and it's up to 700 million and because it's all these loans been guaranteed. I don't know what's coming, but I can only talk about the football side of things. And what I look for is the layers of the club that are connected. And the most important thing for me in all of this is our ability of our manager to upward manage and make sure the ownership back him. And in the last couple of windows, he has been backed. And so I see those connections there. I see the very inexperienced people becoming more experienced by the game and by the transfer window. And we're starting to see some plus points in direction, right? And, and some real common motivation. So I'm all right at the moment. And it's a long time since I've said that, really. But I'm not the sort of guy that sends his stake back. Do you know what I mean? I'm a pretty easygoing yeah. guy. So there are other people that feel very strongly about this, and I have to respect their process, right? But I'm a football guy first and foremost, and at the moment I like the football side of things. And when that's not right, we look up. When that's getting better, we should also look up and recognise there's been some changes in behaviours and yeah. maybe some diff more understanding about what this game is all about. Yeah, it's it's so hard to land on a a conclusion because there are so many layers to the issue of ownership. There's the ethical layer. Is the person who owns my club a good person, a good human being? Do they do things in society that are good or bad? That conversation is one type of conversation. There's the, you know, are they interested in competing and winning? Will they benefit us from a sporting standpoint conversation? There's the, you know, do they understand the history and culture of our of our club and our society? And you know, do they understand what this means to us in terms of ticket pricing and our history? And all, it, there's so many things bound up in this. And I, I I will agree with you, Clive, in saying that I think I would never ever strenuously disagree with someone who has a a negative feeling about ownership because th these issues are all extremely complex and intertwined. But having the conversation from a purely sporting standpoint, I am able to look at the ownership model we have as one that is capable of delivering success on the pitch, albeit at a disadvantage to clubs that are willing to just throw money at the problem endlessly. Um, but I'm also okay not necessarily being owned by one of those clubs. Because the funny thing is just, this is going to sound dumb. As, you know, if it's Christmas every day, it doesn't mean as much. Um, I'd love to win every single title, of course, or, you know, I'd, I'd settle for one. But the point is that, like, I think if you know, you can just blow your rivals away economically such that you're probably going to win eight out of every 10 titles. That might be fun, but I think it's a simulacrum of success. It's like winning in FIFA. It's fun to win the video game, but it doesn't, it doesn't grab you. And I want to be grabbed by success. And part of the way you get grabbed by it is feeling you earned it. You scraped and clawed and outthought and outfought and outreasoned and outbargained and outstructured and out squad built your rivals. And if we win a title anytime in the near future, it will be sure, partly because we have more money than a lot of clubs. Let's not lie about that. But it'll be because we got smart and we reset and we scouted well and we spent well and we were efficient and we got the right coach and we had the right tactics. You know, that will feel like real success. And so I look forward to the time it happens in May of this year or, you know, 2021. So that'll be no fun. Pressure. No, uh, pressure. no pressure. No pressure. Okay. Let's leave it there. Uh, we're going to welcome David Hartrick after the break. Um, and we're going to talk, I'm, I might throw one curveball at him, but just real quick, Clive, can I ask you a question? 
Go. Your voice. Do you consider your voice smooth? I've been told it's quite smooth. Okay. Do you consider your body smooth? Uh, no. <laughs> and the discomfort grows. <laughs> well, then the problem is that you're not using the lawnmower 4.0. Scott, is your body smooth? I smooth use like lots a baby's- of lotion, yeah. Well, lotion is great, but what about... What about the lawnmower 4.0? I, I think the important thing here is for everybody to understand that being smooth is a lifestyle. It's your voice if you're Clive. It's your it's your uh, personality if you're me. Imagine. And it's for all of us, it's your body hair. It is the best tool on the planet for grooming. And it does a great job because it uses porcelain blades. In this economy, you bet it does. Porcelain blades, skin-safe technology, long battery life, waterproof. This thing is purpose-built to get the hair off your body quickly, effectively, and pain-free. And do it wherever you want. You don't want to do it in the rain? Go out in the rain, drop your pants, and shave your privates. You could do it, and it would work. And all you have to do is go to manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision, 20% off, and free shipping. Manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision, 20% off, and free shipping. It makes a great gift. The lotions make a great gift. The shampoo and conditioner, the body wash, certainly the ear hair and nose hair trimmer, which I must admit I have graduated to the age of my life where I have to use it. You got to use these products so you can be smooth. We'll take a break and come back with David Hartrick after this. Stay with us. Okay, we're back, and now I've got David Hartrick on the pod. You can follow him on Twitter, at David Hartrick. David is the author of Silver Linings, Bobby Robson's England, a fantastic book that you should buy and read, and then throw that copy away or digitally delete it and buy it again and read it a second time. Um, and I have no uh, commission for saying that. He is Opta's in-ground analyst for uh, Huddersfield, and he does stuff for the Examiner, uh, Huddersfield Examiner. So uh, a great guy to talk to, and the reason that we are talking to him is a check-in because you may remember this time roughly a year ago, we were talking about young Tyro, Emil Smith-Rowe, who had been on loan at Huddersfield, what he had accomplished there, um, you know, what we might expect from him as a player at Arsenal. Will he break into the Arsenal first team? And could he be a player for Arsenal? And there's a chance he might. There is a chance he might. So we're going we're gonna to follow up on that, but we're going to also talk breaking news with David. But I am still talking and as yet have not introduced him. So hello, David. <laughs> <laughs> hello. That was a lovely introduction. I was very pleased with that, to be fair. Yeah. I, I mean, I could go on and on and on. And and as people know, I often do, but I'm going to try not to. Um, I'm throwing a curveball at you, but you said it was okay because as we've been recording this morning, my time, this afternoon, your time, the Premier League has announced their dates for the World Cup. Uh, the Qatar World Cup in 2022 will take place in the middle of the domestic calendar, as we know. Let me just read some of this out. The Premier League season will start on 6 August 2022. The good news for me with this is I am planning to live in London in August to attend as many games as possible, and um, it starting that early means that I will get some extra games, so that's good. Match round 16 will be the last set of matches played over the weekend of 12-13 November, ahead of the call-up period for the tournament, beginning Monday 14 November. This is where it gets interesting. The league will resume on Boxing Day. Got to have your Boxing Day football. Following the FIFA World Cup final, which takes place Sunday 18 December. So eight days after the final, there will be league football. The final match round of the campaign will be played on 28 May 2023, when all games will kick off simultaneously as usual. And I'm guessing, based on that schedule, it's going to be pretty darn compressed 
Um, obviously, no international breaks will help. I wonder what they're planning to do with the FA Cup. That may still be TBD in terms of when those dates are, but there's going to be a lot of football compressed into a short period of time. So let's take 30,000 foot view first, David. Like, what do you think of this schedule in terms of just its viability and having any kind of realistic um, league campaign? I think one of the big issues is that everybody here is slightly, I mean, I don't want to get the Premier League off the hook on many things, if I'm brutally honest, but they're stuck slightly between a rock and a hard place here because this World Cup has been decided that it's going to be a Winter World Cup and they've got to work around it. And mm. after after the compressed COVID season, weird schedules, um, European championships, lack of pre-seasons, you can't just keep running footballers into the ground. So I... This argument, there's a lot of people making the argument, why don't you just start the season a month earlier? Rest and recuperation is important, and there's a lot of players who need a proper summer this time. And, you know, ultimately, if you want to keep the quality of your product high, (laughs) these are things and considerations you have to make. So... (sighs) I, I don't know. I don't think there's any any other way they could have done it. And I know the initial proposal when they were talking about these dates, the, the really interesting thing is that every round until they break up um, for the World Cup, there is some form of midweek football as well. So there's going to be, I think they have to get one round of Premier League games in, they have to get the League Cup in, and they have to get, uh, they're trying to get every Champions League group stage gun uh, day uh, game done, and the same for the Europa League. Mm-hmm. That is so much football. Yeah. <laughs> that is so much football. And it, like, we're, we're sat here not even halfway through the 21-22 season, and I'm sat here thinking, well, if I was a betting man next season, the Premier League title, I might just see who's got the biggest squad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, it really is going it, to... It's going to be strange. And I just... Something has to give at some point in terms of quality. So we're either going to get an absolutely fabulous World Cup but then the last couple of months of the season at the highest level, we're going to have an awful lot of players who are very, very tired. Or I think it might be a bit of a stinking World Cup. <laughs> I, I I just don't know which way it's going to go. But I just I think in terms of the Premier League, I just can't see any other solution, really. I can't see any other way for them to do it because they've got to give players a summer this time. Um, I, w- I want to ask you a really big question that we can just touch on quickly. Do you think that this Winter World Cup thing and the potentially disruptive impact it's going to have on domestic leagues and UEFA competitions could hasten a coming battle between the domestic leagues, UEFA, and FIFA? I have always thought it is strange that these clubs that pay tens of millions of pounds a year for these players and the sponsors that pay hundreds of millions or billions of pounds to put the the spectacle on are willing to let this other party that derives a benefit from these players without conferring any benefit on the leagues or their sponsors is allowed to basically disrupt the entire flow of a season, take the players away at great risk to the club through injury and, you know, long-term absence. And that this is just tolerated in the name of, a sporting spectacle that is seen somehow as this, you know, global 
global ambassadorship, but really is just a huge money grab from one of the most corrupt organizations in the world. Like I, I can't see how these organizations continue to operate in this way without there being some butting of heads. And and maybe the Super League was an early preview of that potentially coming challenge. But I, I know it's a huge question. But do you think that this could hasten a, a rupture? Uh, there's there's a lot to this. I think. I, uh... This World Cup should not be happening. Okay, so before you before you even talk about the scheduling, look at the way it was awarded to Qatar and what has, uh, the way Qatar have conducted themselves in terms of putting this World Cup on. We can't go into all the human rights arguments here, but to be frank, it just shouldn't be happening. But I do wonder if this World Cup is almost seen as like the last necessary evil. And if FIFA are, how can I put it, if they are serious about cleaning their act up and changing going forward, I wonder if this is the World Cup they slightly have to get out the way (laughs) and Mm -hmm. then they can move on to better, potentially more collaborative things. Shifting a World Cup like this is massive, absolutely huge. Now, I I am uh, an international football fanatic. I I love international football. Yeah, same. But this World Cup for me, um, I still don't know how I go about consuming it morally, how I go about investing myself in it, um, if I'm brutally honest. So when you have all of those things and then you have the, the, the very, very legitimate arguments you've just made, and, you know, like it or not, we can all talk about the institutions that we want our football clubs to be and various other things. But these are very, very serious, very, very topical, very, very legitimate arguments. And you're exactly right. If you, if you had a business and you poured all your money into buying a factory and building the equipment, if somebody came along for six weeks and said, we're going to use your equipment, we're going to use your factory, you're not going to make anything out of it, and by the way, if we break anything, that's on you to sort out, that wouldn't be tolerated in any other industry. So Maybe an Airbnb. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it really... I, I just think my personal take is that I, I do feel like everybody just sort of wants to get this out of the way. And I think if they turn around and said, okay, well, we really like doing that. The next World Cup, we're gonna, we've decided we're going to play it in February and March. I think that's when you would have a mass revolt. I think that's, I think everybody will take this one on the chin, but I think if they turn around and tried to do it again, that would be the line. That's my personal opinion anyway. Yeah, and I I mean it's it's obviously bound up in the fact that like the individual football associations have a lot of power domestically too to help sort of enforce FIFA FIFA's rule. But I I don't you know and again, this is a very American view I understand, but we don't have the same central authority in our sports that has power over the leagues. And so it is just a very weird thing for me still even you know more than 20 years into my football fandom to exist in a scenario where this third party can just take your players, stop Mm. your league, go make a bunch of money off it through incredibly corrupt means and questionable human rights practices, return your players broken, and there's nothing to be done about it. And I mean, I know Arsene Wenger famously would rail about this. And, you know, I mean, you could make an argument that the leagues themselves are not much better when it comes to ethics or morality, whatever you want to say, but there is a tension there, regardless of which side you fall on. 
the idea that that tension can continue to exist. Because the other thing is, you've got a lot of very powerful and wealthy people that own the clubs. Billionaires famously like to get their way. And <laughs> I don't know how much longer you're going to have billionaire business people invested in clubs watching you know, millionaire FIFA executives get brown envelopes under doors to take their players away and break them. And yeah, just it, anyway, I'm repeating myself, but it feels no, unsustainable. No, yeah. And I think the other thing is, I think the other line that's coming is uh, Arsene Wenger has, uh, Daniel Story has written a very, very good article yesterday um, for The Independent. Um, if you follow Dan on Twitter, you'll be yep. able to pick it up. And I'm, I'm not just saying that because he is one of my best friends. I'm saying that because it is an excellent article. And, Dan made the point that Wenger has has himself has drunk the FIFA Kool-Aid and it is him that has become practically the public face of this World Cup every two years. Now, again, I think that's a real line in the sand moment because a World Cup every two years essentially diminishes the, the individual confederations tournaments. Um, because you know the European Championships and the Copper etc. have to take a secondary role to this sort of behemoth of a World Cup every two years, and if it is two years, you can't just keep playing it in countries that fit within a certain timescale. So this issue is going to come up again. If you're going to have a, a, a true sort of a, a true world where everybody can bid for for hosting it. These are problems that are going to come up again and again. So, yeah, it, it does feel like they've got to get past this World Cup and then they have to make a huge decision because if they do go to a World Cup two years and expand the number of teams in it, bear in mind, you know, it's a, it's a twofold argument they're putting forward. That's That's probably where we're going to start to see the true pushback, I think. Yeah, I mean... More teams every two years, you know, splitting it between countries, moving it in within the domestic calendar. Like, there's mm. only so much you can continue to do. Yeah. It's the other thing I would say, I, and I know this is a this is an Arsenal podcast, but I think it's relevant because when you're talking about the development of young players and you know young players who are out on loan, etc. What this is doing to the championship, for example, where you have more games anyway, so you have a 46-game league season. You have, I think it's at least, I think it's six weeks through the season where effectively you're playing three games in eight days. The championship is also going to have to take a break. League one and league two is undecided, but the championship is going to take a break. And that's for as long as the World Cup group stages are on, or that is what is being proposed. So then they're going to get those players back or some players back. Um, they've got another compressed timeline. And this is the league where the likes of Emil Smith-Rowe have been to to sort of be blooded and get some experience. This is where Mason Mount, who is is you know currently one of the sort of key figures in the England setup, spent time learning their trade. And again, you keep they keep diminishing this experience by just the answer is not more football all the time. You know, the answer to football's problems is not more football. And it, I, I think that the knock-on effects of, of other leagues, we can sometimes get caught in a little bit of bubble looking at English football or looking at the clubs we cover, etc. These things are causing issues for literally every single league in the world, every professional league in the world. So when you, when you are doing something that is causing every professional league in the world issues, you cannot realistically expect not to get some sort of pushback against that at some point. Yeah. And I mean, just from a very Arsenal centric perspective, because, you know, 
podcast, Arsenal Vision. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, <clears throat> Mikel Arteta is going to go from a season of no Europe with a fairly relaxed schedule where the fixtures are once a week and he can prepare with the team and he mostly has a pretty undisturbed uh you know, uh, calendar to, to work with, a- African Cup and Nations aside, to if we get back into Europe, trying to cram in Premier League games, cram in European games, lose the players for the international tournament, who knows what state they come back in, and once again managing by firing squad because, you know, he stepped in, there was the pandemic layoff, there was Project Restart, there were no fans in the ground for a year. Now he's getting what you would call, a, you know, I guess a quote, normal season, and then next season it's back to being madness. And I just think, you know, it is in sharper relief, this this disruption, given the fact <clears throat> that it comes on the heels so quickly of the disruption of the pandemic. Um, also worth pointing out that we don't know what the state of that will be at this time. So yeah. lots of considerations there. One last thing on this, just in terms of the madness of like international managers getting their players a handful of days before a World Cup starts, and then club managers having a season start a week after the final ends. I mean, what is the what is the realistic likelihood that they are even able to put on anything that looks remotely like high level football under the compression of that calendar? Yeah, that's it. Goes back to the point I was making before about quality. I, yeah. I think you know the, the answer is never more football. <laughs> that's the yeah. thing. It's there are a lot of players. I mean, I I mentioned his name cautiously on this podcast. But you look at Harry Kane, and he looks to me I try like not to. But <laughs> <laughs> the very best thing that could happen to Harry Kane is to pull a hamstring yeah, and have six to a, a while, yeah. and have six to eight weeks being no, 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 but he, he's going to be David. He's going to be fine now because um, Conte banned the sauces. Yeah, the sauces are banned. Of course. So, so you know, no ketchup, no no brown sauce. Harry Kane, he's he's going to be fine. Yeah. So, but he's not the only one. You know, I can. I think a lot of Raheem Sterling's problems at Man City and with England over the last sort of six to twelve months, where his form has been so sporadic and so all over the place, has been down to tiredness and down to the relentless nature of the schedule. So, you know, these are very valid concerns. And when you diminish the quality of something, giving people more of that thing every two years is is not the answer is it it's not <laughs> slowly you end up with a diminished product yourself and yeah i i do think we're coming to some sort of reckoning but i don't think it comes yet i don't think it comes around qatar i think it comes after that with what they decide to do with the world cup longer term yeah well i think we can move on from this except to say that it is going to be a very very bizarre season i do think one potential change that could come as a result of this, Dave. I, I know the big clubs in the Premier League really wanted the five substitution rule change. Mm-hmm. I think they could come back next summer and with this ca- schedule, push for it again and, and maybe force it through this time. Do you think that might be a, a thing that happens? Uh, I I think common sense has to prevail. <laughs> I think like like last season, it was done for... It was done for a very practical reason um, and a reason I completely agreed with, if I'm brutally honest. So I, if the schedule is going to be such as it is, I, I can't see any reason not to do it. As a Brighton fan, in truth, I sit here looking at our squad and looking at other people's squad and going, okay, that's, 
that's handing an advantage to a certain section of, of Premier League teams. But at the same time, I can't argue about it because the alternative is certain players running themselves into the ground and we lose them anyway. We lose them regardless, you know, to muscle strains and injuries, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't think there's any way around that. And I think when they, if they get it back, they won't let it go either. I, I think if five subs comes back, I think we all have to accept that's it for for all time from that point. Oh, yeah. No, they're not giving it back. That's for sure. No. Um, well, good. So 18 minutes in, we can now start the conversation we intended <laughs> to have. Uh, Emil Smithrow, good at the football. I, I think in your wildest dreams of what he had to offer, I'm not sure if you would have expected him to make the impact he made as quickly as he did, but... You know, you, you, one thing that I really took away from our conversation last year was talking about how at Huddersfield, he'd be disappointed, you know, even if he was named man of the match and hadn't scored a goal and left goals out there, that, that he really wanted to score goals. We're seeing him add that to his game now. I'm curious, looking at the, the development he's made, does it look like sort of the natural continuation of what you saw at Huddersfield or even maybe beyond your expectation in terms of timeline? Um, weirdly a bit of both. Mm. <laughs> I think the the thing at Huddersfield was he would be disappointed because he knew he kept getting in the right areas. He knew he was getting in the right areas. He wasn't necessarily getting the chances every time because let's be frank, Huddersfield are not a good team like Arsenal are. So you don't get the level of chance creation. You don't get the quality of passing. But I think also, I think if you were, one of the big things for me is that one of the worries was about his physicality because he'd had the loan at Leipzig that didn't go well. They didn't manage his injury well. He came to town and one of the sort of express conditions was that in the three game in eight day weeks, he couldn't play three times. He just, you know, physically he wasn't able. So he kept having sort of, what were random absences at the time, um, but he, he kept missing games in those weeks. We knew why, but it was sort of never spoken. Now you've got a young man who, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he's played more minutes than anybody in the Arsenal squad this season. I will have to correct you if you are wrong momentarily, but I am going to check that and then act like I knew from the beginning. <laughs> um, and I think that alone is fairly huge fairly huge i think yes, before he you has start, the most minutes you are correct as a keen arsenal follower you are <laughs> correct and i did not know that but yes. um, so then if you dig into some of his other stats so if you look at his sort of his personal xg which i think is second only to uh nicholas pepe who i think has played about a third less football so mm. statistically that makes a huge difference and uh Aubameyang, who if you take his non-penalty xg out goes down to half and he's I think about something like point five ahead of him. Yeah. That that is huge progress. I mean you can't like you can't deny that is absolutely massive. And so while I'm while I'm weirdly not surprised, I still am a little bit surprised, which I know sounds a complete contradiction in terms, but the talent was always there and the willingness was always there. But the 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 more than anything, I think it's the ability to just play football consistency that has brought him to this level. That has has got his body where it needs to be to match the mind. And 
yeah, he's just, he was sensational to watch at times at Huddersfield, but without having that end product. He now has that end product. So he's just sensational to watch. And I don't know if you saw, he was interviewed recently or <clears throat> put an interview out about getting a chef appointed to yeah. him by Arsenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, yeah, I mean, I, I know it, these are the, the marginal gains that seem so silly, you know, as a fan to be, oh, he has a chef, look out. But the only thing that really felt like it could derail Emil Smith Rowe, in my view, were these soft tissue injuries, the, the inability to stay on the pitch. And, mm. it, you know, you don't want to jump to conclusions or jinx him, which Paul did on the podcast recently, jinx everybody. But, like, uh, it, you know, he feels that it's making a difference, and it certainly seems to be. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that can totally transform a player's fortunes if he can just yeah. stay fit. Oh, absolutely. At, the, at any level one of the key things for any footballer is to feel as comfortable as possible. And he's he's always struggled with his nerves and his confidence. And he's had some some help with that. And I think the club have, have looked after him in that regard as well. These things like getting a chef and, and it it's funny because at Huddersfield Town, and I know a lot of people switch off at the the, the minute I mention them, but Huddersfield Town have got a young wing back called Sorba Thomas. Now, Sorba Thomas in uh, January was still playing for Boreham Wood in the National League. So he wasn't a professional footballer. It's not that long ago he was a scaffolder. Now, Sorba Thomas joined town in January. And this season, he's currently leading the championship on assists. Um, He's played more minutes than anybody else in the town squad. He is leading on loads of statistical metrics. And one of the big things was that... He came back early for pre-season because more than anything, he he wanted to learn how to be a professional footballer because they were finding things last season when he first got there that he just didn't know. Like, for instance, he would have a, a Coke when he wanted a drink. Mm-hmm. And it's like, don't drink full-fat Coke sorber. You know, drink water. It's it's far better for you longer term and it doesn't cause you to go up and down like a roller coaster. These little things, these little gains add up to to big victories. This is the thing. And you look like, for for instance, the confidence thing. I think there's no single metric that you can look at and say, okay, well, that shows he's confident. But he's he's currently, I think there's only um, Lacazette who is ahead of him in terms of shots on target percentage. And I don't think it's by much. I did. I haven't looked for about a week, so I, that might be wrong, but I think it's not by much. Mm. Now, Lacazette has played a lot less football. So again, you have to question the sort of statistical relevance. And having a a shot on target percentage of sort of over, you know, over 55%, playing in his position at his age, playing the amount of football he has, shows that he is a player who is now doing the right things consistently well and doing the things that it does take a level of confidence to do. It takes a level of confidence to get in scoring positions. It takes a level of confidence to be willing to take the shot on and take the responsibility. So to do that and to do that well is as close as you can have of a statistical indicator of that. And I always think with footballers, like there's this a lot of people take the mick out of things like I don't know years ago Ryan Giggs taking up yoga to prolong his career etc I just think the if the little things make a player five percent more confident or five percent happier 
then just let them do whatever whatever it is let them do and you know if he feels the chef and the nutritionist and the little bit of help he's had with his nerves have helped him then absolutely brilliant that's that's keep (laughs) keep doing those things as much as you possibly can Mm. and yeah i'm curious did when when you saw arsenal go for martin odegaard in the summer did you have any concerns about its impact on smith rowe arteta certainly has used smith rowe as much as possible so it hasn't been borne out and he's used him sort of off the left as like an inside wide forward it's you know we won't get into the two three five and three two five build and all that nonsense right now but did you did you think that that might be a direct competition what do you think of tactically how Arteta has has deployed Smithrow versus what you saw at Huddersfield well, I remember talking to Danny Cowley about Emil Smithrow. One of the things that Danny Cowley was uh, like incredibly impressed by was that he genuinely thought he could play as as an eight in central midfield. He could play as a ten. He played him off the right a couple of times, um, and he know I can't remember off the top of my head. I don't remember seeing him playing off the left. But Danny Cowley certainly thought he was basically capable of playing in any attacking position. So I think what you're seeing is a, like a incredibly versatile player taking the opportunity he's being given, really. And I think he's the sort of player that goes, well, if you sign Martin Odegaard and that means I can't play central for some games and my chances on the left, I'm going to do everything I can from that position. I don't think he... You know, I, I don't think he's he's a player who sits there and goes, that is my position. If I don't play in that position, then I'm not going to be as good. And mm-hmm. that is something that other footballers have done, it, and it's harmed their careers, let's be honest. Um, so I, I, I was sort of wondered if Smithrow might not play as much football, but I never sort of doubted that he would take the opportunities he got when they came his way. And I mean, having having Odegaard and Smithrow is it's not a bad choice to have, really. The other side to it is this is Premier League football. If you're if you're a proper Premier League club who wanna who wanna push on and wanna win things, every single person has to accept at that club that there are two people who can drop into any position in the first team. That's how you're successful that you can replace links in the chain and the chain doesn't break. So I think there's also has to be a sort of a mindset about it. And it doesn't surprise me from, you know, to, speaking to people who work with him and know him, that his mindset about such things is, is like properly dialed in and where it needs to be on such things. Yeah. Well, I'm obviously like there's, there's not much more to say because he's just been super encouraging and, and his trajectory is brilliant, but the one thing that I think has been called out for praise, Jamie Carragher says he's the best player with the ball at his feet in the Premier League. That might be a little premature, but it certainly is a special skill. And, you know, I, I, we we as Arsenal fans, I think as, as any fans, you tend, to, when you look at a player that's up and coming or new within your team, to try to analogize them to a player that went before. So, you know, with Ozil, is he Fabregas? With Odegaard, is he Ozil? <laughs> you know, you, you make yeah. these kind of comparisons. Yeah. And Smith Rowe is a tough one because he's a hybrid in so many ways with what he can do. There's an Aaron, Aaron Ramsey quality about his game there, you know, but maybe as someone with just a, a higher starting position. And then, you know, I, I struggle to sort of put him in the box of what he could be, but that skill in particular of carrying the, the ball, you know, bringing the ball from the edge of the defensive third to the edge of the attacking third, you know, breaking lines by running with the ball at his feet. 
that does seem to be a superpower of his. And I'm wondering if that's something that you picked up on right away at Huddersfield or if he's even really gone up a level with that specifically. Huddersfield Town have got a player called Lewis O'Brien. And Lewis mm-hmm. O'Brien is a, a, a fantastic young footballer. He's not a Neil Smith Rowe, but he is for the championship. He is a fantastic young footballer. Very came close to moving to Leeds this this summer, and would have been moving to Leeds to play. He wasn't going to be part of the squad or to be given a couple of years to develop. He was going to play. And Lewis O'Brien's key quality is his a his engine. He covers more ground than anyone I've seen in my life. And B, his ability to drive with the ball and carry the ball. And it was quite interesting when Smith-Rowe was at Huddersfield that he O'Brien was sort of tasked with a slightly different role and Smith-Rowe was carrying the ball. He, he became the player as a 10 who was playing slightly deeper than a lot of 10s and picking up the ball for that precise reason because... Huddersfield Town had a creativity issue and Danny Cowley's sort of way to get over that was to to force it, basically. You can either try and be really clever or you can be force it by literally trying to put a defence on the back foot by having a player who's willing to carry and willing to run with it. So, yeah, you could see you could see the beginnings of it. And I think that I think that ability on the ball and being able to carry the ball is one of the things that makes him versatile. Because if you if you have strengths in a single position, so you know, if if it's your weird as it sounds, if you play as a 10 because you know you can turn over your right shoulder and you get a decent field of vision and you can play in who you need to play in, that's a great asset. But if you're if you can do a little bit of everything, then you can play off the left or you can play as a 10 or you can drop right or you can play as more of a second striker instead of a 10. You, you just have more strings to your bow. And I, I think his confidence on the ball and his ability to do these things is what gives him that versatility, which is what is giving him the confidence, which is what is making him play like this. It's, it's all part of the package you know it's it's every, every single point of it is is a side of the square if you know what I mean and I, I think it just adds up to I, I just hope as I said before I hope the physicality holds I hope he doesn't go down with a muscle strain or or pick something up we've seen no evidence that's going to happen so far this season and you know all I can say is like long may that continue really yeah I mean there's definitely a part of me that is thrilled for him to be called up to the England team there is a part of me that says having a couple weeks off every few weeks is not the worst thing in the world for a player that's being played as much as he is with some of the track record he has. But he's drinking water and he has a chef, so he's going to be fine. Um, and no and no sauces. That's the key. No sauces. Okay, one last thing, David, because you are actually not a Huddersfield Town fan. You uh, report on them and do all your analysis thingamajig for them. But you are a Brighton fan and you have a specific interest in Ben White. And I think this is the section of the pod we will call I Told You So. Um, <laughs> you loved Ben White. You thought he was someone that had a big future. What do you think about – why don't you do this? <clears throat> why don't you tell us a little bit about how you felt about Arsenal's move for Ben White? Um, and now, obviously, I think a lot of people are going to agree with you. Well, I, I remember we, we, did a, we did a very hasty podcast on – I think it was the Friday night when he – I'm not sure if it was done or certainly it was announced that it was it was going to be basically. And there was a little bit of pushback from some Arsenal fans about the fee and to be frank about buying a defender from from Brighton 
which completely understandable. But everything I said on that podcast, I still stand by now. And it's just nice to see proof of it in a, you know, let's be frank, a slightly better side um, in terms of the squad. And people are going to pull you up on the slightly better, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> allow, I'll allow it. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, Brighton are doing really well this season. I have no complaints this season, but what Ben White did for us last season and what Ben White did for Leeds as well was phenomenal. And when I said he was the, the best defender I'd seen at his age, that wasn't just bias talking. You could speak to plenty of Leeds fans who will tell you exactly the same. And it was a, it was a huge fee, but it was representative of stratospheric potential. Honestly, he, he is... He has just got so many natural attributes that you can work on everything else. And he is a progressive defender. You know, he's not a spit and sawdust uh, clearing people into Rose Ed defender. That's just not his game. So you need to partner him with the right person. And I, I think Arsenal are certainly showing signs that they're doing that. And I think he, he has got, he's not perfect by any means, but I think if you just look at the amount of football he's played, his age, and think where he could be in even two years' time, never mind four or five, I think he's just a really special player. I really do. Sorry, I was on mute there. <laughs> like the <laughs> true professional I am as I balance this. Um, hang on, and pause. Yeah, well, do you think Mikel Arteta deserves some credit too for not just identifying the player in part, and I'm sure, you know, maybe Adu does as well, but I think one question that I had is I looked at the Brighton system and I said, he's not he's not really playing like a center back in a back four, but it doesn't really matter because what Mikel has done in the system that we use and the way that Ben White is deployed, he still gets those best qualities out of him and doesn't seem to expose what we might consider to be the parts of his game that are still developing. So do you think sort of tactically and in terms of identifying a role for him, Mikel deserves huge credit with that? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I think when you look at the managers Ben White has worked under, Marcello Bielsa, the, the, you know, the manager who, who, when times are good under Bielsa, his main tactic is just to keep, just to throw everything into a washing machine, basically, and throw everything at you. Then he goes and plays for Graham Potter, who he's the he's the reverse. He makes a lot of changes. He changes his system from opponent to opponent, but he is about long term gains. Which, like when people talk about Graham Potter leaving Brighton for these these crisis clubs, it always makes me smile because he is the opposite of that. He's not he's not a short term boost guy. He's a, he's a long term coaching improvement guy, and now. White is playing under Mikel Arteta, who has got a real ball-playing defender on his hands, and he was a real ball-playing midfielder. Mm. And I think he's got so much naturally that I think just enhancing the technical elements is right where he needs to be right now. He doesn't need any more than that. Just keep working on the technical elements. And the odd pass goes astray. He will make the odd mistake. There will be the odd tackle. He doesn't get there. But you have to sort of look at what you're gaining from him being, you know, playing the way he does and by being there. And I think, yeah, you have to give, 
you have to give credit to Arteta for for being able to integrate him as he has, but with the slight caveat that I I think he would fit into nearly every side. If I'm brutally honest, I I just think he's that he's that talented, but he's definitely a player that I think. I completely understand the reaction and I completely understand the reservations. I was just about to ask you that. That's funny, yeah. I I think he's definitely a player that until you watch him play, you don't appreciate what he's doing. Um, You know, you you need to see him play for 90 minutes quite regularly and you get it. Funnily enough, I've had a bit of this myself with Declan Rice. I've never really seen it with Declan Rice. And then this season, I've had the opportunity to watch him three or four times and I've sat there and gone okay, yeah, I get it now. I get yeah. it. And I think he's just that, I think White just fits in that that category, if I'm honest. Yeah, and I, I have to admit, right, that some of the flaws in my analysis about the Ben White move stem from two things. One is a lack of imagination, just seeing a player who seemed to have a role for Brighton that I don't associate with being traditional center back in a four kind of role and saying, well, that must mean he can't do that which is reductive and probably a process I can reevaluate. And then some of it is more the squad building aspect of, hey, we have this guy that looks very much like a traditional center back in a back four who's getting rave reviews from France, who we spent a lot of money on and is young and also up and coming, and we could pull him in and use these resources elsewhere. And then I watched some scouting footage of that guy and saw a pretty raw player who was probably not ready to step in and be a starter at the Premier League level. And... The problem is sometimes as a fan, you are really looking at a room through a keyhole. Mm. And as the manager of a club and technical director of a club, you're seeing much more of the picture, where you want to go and where the players are in the moment. And there's no denying that between the development that was still needed from Saliba and the potential that was within Ben White, that we made the right choice for our immediate success and it's bearing fruit now. And I, I just think being able to raise your hand and say, yeah, I got that wrong. I got that wrong on multiple layers. Multiple dimensions of the analysis were partially correct, but totally incorrect in their conclusion. Um, so, I mean, just in terms of that, I'm not asking you to be a Saliba expert, but do you do you sort of understand the feeling that fans might have had about, hey, we've got one young guy who belongs to the club who we could just pull in and use? Um, you know, how do you, how do you view that in terms of people that might have had maybe just a, a, a hesitation on us spending the way we did on Ben White? Yeah, I completely get it. There, there's a huge premium on young English players, and Arsenal paid it, and twice with Ramsdale and Ben. Yeah, yeah. And you look there and you go, okay, was there a better option? Was there a more complete option for the money? But I do I do think you have to think longer term about these things. So. you look at the money that that Manchester United have played for certain individuals that hasn't paid them back anything, anything. And, you know, I've no idea how Jadon Sancho's career is going to go, but he, we're not going to see anything of him until he's got a different manager. You look at the money Arsenal have played for Ben White. And I think if you lift Mikel Arteta out of there tomorrow and put someone in, I think Ben White just adapts and gets on with it regardless. I, mm. I I think there is a level of consistency and an attitude there that I'm not going to say anybody is worth that amount of money because it's just, it's a very odd concept to say somebody is worth £50 million. But no, they're think, worth what the market says they're worth. I'm yeah, willing to put that aside, yeah. Arsenal could get a really top-level young defender 
developing on their time and turning into a genuinely a world-class player over the next five or six years and suddenly 50 million seems incredibly cheap it's just I completely get the short-term reaction you know I, I really yeah. do I really do but he's just good trust well, me and it's, it's hard because <laughs> center backs come in so many shapes and sizes like you look yeah. at the big yeah. center back purchases at three big clubs just or four big clubs for example let's look at Liverpool Virgil van Dyke the everything center back, the, the 100 out of 100, every, every quality you want from a center back, you, you know, you hit the lottery there. There's the Harry Maguire center back physically looks exactly like what you want from a center back, but I think has some clear flaws that have been exploited. I mean, maybe, maybe he's become more of a joke than he should. Um, you know, because I don't think he's a bad player, but the fee they paid, I think the, the flaws in his game, you know, it is what it is. You look at, you know, Man- Manchester City, well, they've they've bought so, so, so many center backs. <laughs> but Ruben Diaz, right, um, absolutely elite in a totally different way. And then Ben White at Arsenal. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're just, a, it's a difficult position because I think you'd agree, David, that like the data doesn't tell you a whole hell of a lot about them accurately. They're, the body style or shape or size of them is sometimes over-indexed in terms of what they can do. I've seen big, strong center backs who can't head a ball and smaller center backs, I mean, Shodran Mustafi, for all his flaws, the one thing he was elite at was winning balls in the air. I mean, it just, mm-hmm. it is a difficult position to scout. And I think, I, I sort of have this theory that one thing you should use in scouting, if you could develop it, would be a fan sentiment metric off Twitter. Because yes, there are dumb fans on Twitter and I am certainly among them. I think if majority, if large majorities of fan base of a fan base think a player of theirs is brilliant, they're probably onto something. And Brighton fans, to a man, seem to love Benjamin White and know what they had in him, you know. Yeah, and Leeds United as well. Yeah, that too. Le- yep. Mm-hmm. You know, they, Ramsdale, they were- by the way, player of the season at at Sheffield United and Leeds. So you know. Yeah, and I, I think <laughs> I think you're exactly right. I, I as I said, I could, not to repeat myself, but I just think there is a certain style, a certain type of player where you have to see it. You you can't be told about it. You have to see it. And it's often in the slightly, let's be frank, it's often in the less glamorous positions. It's defensive midfield with Declan Rice. It's central defender with Ben White. It's goalkeeper with Aaron Ramsdale. I get that. Football is, is, you know, slowly being reduced to a series of YouTube videos for for a couple of generations now. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but I, I, I do sort of understand it. But... Sometimes, I, I hate to use this phrase because it's an awful phrase, but sometimes you have to trust the process and mm. you have to, you have to look at, the, <laughs> you have to look at the, the recruitment and you have to look at the work that's gone into it and you have to look at, here's, here's a player, you know, Ben White was a player that was being looked at. Oh, sorry, my Alexa's going off. Huh? Uh, you have to look at Ben White as a player who was being looked at by literally every major club in Europe. And there has to be a reason for that, doesn't there? Yeah. There, there has yeah. to be something behind that. So, yeah. But no, I, I just I just think he's fabulous. And I just, I really am excited to see where he is in three years because I think central central defenders, they they when they mature the right way, they can often have sort of four or five years where they just become these sort of complete colossuses, really. And I'm really looking forward to England potentially having one of them. Yeah. I am minded of a line in The Matrix from what you said, the famous line in The Matrix. Unfortunately, 
no one can be told what Benjamin White is. You have to <laughs> see it for yourself. I think we can leave it there, David. Kept you way too long, but got uh, phenomenal, phenomenal insight as ever. And we'll look forward to doing this again in the future. David's on Twitter, at David Hartrick. Uh, please buy his book. Uh, read it or don't, then delete it, buy it again, delete it, buy it again. By the third purchase, you will really have the best version of the book. I kid, but only sort of. He's great. Consume his stuff. David, thank you so much. No problem whatsoever. Okay, that'll do it. I uh, hope you enjoyed this one. And uh, we will have more tomorrow and on and on. There will be uh, so many podcasts, but they will all be essential listening and you are required to listen to them. Thanks, everybody. We will come back with more in a bit. Hope you're doing well, enjoying your inner law, and we love you, and we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, Liverpool nil. No. 